Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. In fairness, I almost wasn't able to be here this weekend. Last weekend, Laura left me by myself with our three kids, and I almost lost my salvation. Come on, you know what I'm saying? So uh, that can't happen. But it's good to be back with you. I'm excited to be closing out this series called The Bible for Grownups. If you're a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, these past four weeks together, we've been in a series of messages examining the validity of the Bible. And every week we've said how there's a lot of people who know some stories in the Bible, but very few people are familiar with the story of the Bible. And if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's very easy to discount the Bible. And so one of my goals for you, not just in this series, but in all the messages that we do, is that I want to uh, help you learn that the Bible tells one story. I tell people we might do 10 series of messages every year, but I've really only got one message. And I just repackage it a number of ways. And it's the message of God rescuing the people that he's created through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, but in conjunction with that story, I also want you to know that how, the story of how you physically receive the Bible that is in your hands today. The Bible that's chaptered and versed and wrapped and mapped. How did you get that into your hands? The very fact that you own a Bible can be uh, somewhat misleading in the, in the fact that uh, nearly everybody in America has a Bible. Uh, there was a study I read that said 87% of households in America own at least one Bible. In fact, the average house in America owns 4.4 Bibles. The problem is less than 20% of people actually read their Bible. And so what you're doing with that many Bibles in your house, I have no idea if it's a decoration or paperweight or you use it to get into a secret entrance somewhere in your house. I don't know why you would have that many Bibles. But if there's any one thing that I hope to accomplish as your pastor in our years that God gives us, is that you would learn to have a love and a desire to read God's Bible. Furthermore, I want you to understand the sacrifice that was made so that you could freely read this book. I want you to understand that for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was illegal to own any writings of God. It was illegal to own a Bible. There was a period in history when churches would chain Bibles to pulpits because they didn't want you reading them. Because if you read them, you would understand that some of the things they're asking you to do is not the things God was asking you to do. And it was a power struggle. And I want you to know that one of the primary men responsible for you getting your Bible in your hands today, a guy named William Tyndale, he was strangled and then his body burned because he wanted to translate your Bible into English so you could read it today. Point being, a lot of people have risked their lives so you could have access to this book. And it has nothing to do with the information contained on the pages. People don't die for words. People don't allow themselves to be dipped in tar and lit on fire for philosophy. People don't watch their relatives and children be fed to lions because of some kind of love and morality that Jesus taught. No, people risked their lives and died horrible deaths not because of something Jesus said, 
because of something they saw Jesus do. They saw him die on a cross and three days later walk out of a tomb. Everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And the, if the, as the Bible points out, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. And so I've titled my message this morning, Goat Hair and Old Man Skin. What? I'm talking about Mr. Tumnus today and fawns? No, no, no. We're going to get to goat hair and old man skin in all of its glory, and it will be glorious, I promise you, when we get there. First, I need you to join me in a section of your Bible titled Luke. Luke is towards the back of your Bible. Look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke is how it will go. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4 today. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit in Luke, but we'll stay in Luke most of the day. My goal for us today is twofold. First, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus believed in your Old Testament as it is written. There's no need to tidy it up. There's no need to explain things away. Critics like to ask, how could a good God allow such and such to happen? And how can a God be jealous? And how can you believe certain things? And what I'm going to prove to you today is that Jesus believed everything that is written in uh, in your Old Testament. And then goal number two is to confirm that contained in the pages of your New Testament is something better than what is in your Old Testament. There's a new command. So valid and trustworthy, then something better. That's our treasure map today. Okay, Luke chapter 4, you should be there by now. Let's go pick it up in verse 42. Reads, early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowds searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. So he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. So here's the question we need to answer. What is the good news of the kingdom of God? If that's why Jesus was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, what is that and how should it be preached? Is that the right tense of preached? Preached or is it prot? Like teach and taught? Doesn't matter. Nobody knows. Okay, let's go to Luke chapter 24. A few pages to your right. We'll pick it up in verse 44. Jesus continues. uh, He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day, rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. Oh, there it is. I answered my own question. Good job, Bible. All right. The forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name of to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of this. Okay, so apparently, according to this passage, the good news of the kingdom of God is that the Messiah will suffer and be killed and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. And the people he's talking to are witnesses 
of that. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm immediately wondering, okay, how is that good news? I mean, yeah, that's a pretty cool trick. You were dead and now you're alive. I'm a witness of that. But Messiah, forgiveness of sins, I'm basically a good person. What do I need to be forgiven of? Furthermore, how is that better than a goat? Because that was the old way of forgiving sins. You would make a sacrifice to God and be good. You know, like, here, priest, take my goat, and I'm good. How is that worse than the forgiveness of sins by a Messiah? Hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a second. First, I need you to notice that Jesus is commanding his followers who have witnessed him raised from the dead to go preach this good news of the forgiveness of sin all over the world. And the first thing that he does so that they can go preach is open up their minds to understand the scriptures. It stands to reason then preaching requires two things. First, a verbal articulation of the good news. And second, an understanding of the scriptures. So if you go, ever go somewhere and a pastor gets up to preach, but he doesn't explain the gospel, that's what good news is. The gospel literally translates good news. If he doesn't explain the gospel and he doesn't use the scriptures to do it, it might be helpful information, but it's not preaching. It might be true and creative and well-packaged and funny, but it won't have the power to change your life, which is what preaching should do. But aside from that, keep in mind, at this time, there is no the Bible. There's a Hebrew collection of documents called the Tanakh, but there isn't a B-I-B-L-E. So what is Jesus opening up their minds to? Like if we could get our hands on Dr. Strange's time stone and travel through the quantum realm and end up back into first century church, and, and what are they preaching In our very first passage, if we went to see Jesus stand up in the synagogue and preach, what is he expounding on? Well, write this down. Jesus preached from and believed in your entire Old Testament. Jesus preached from and believed in the entire Old Testament. That's what I'm going to prove to you today. A lot of people want to try and discount the Bible because they don't want to do what it says, but I'm getting ready to show you that Jesus trusted in it, and he trusted in it so much that when he was preaching, he preached from it. And before he ascended into heaven, he opened up his disciples' minds so that they could understand what they were reading in an effort to allow them to preach this good news to the entire world. And so here's what you need to know. In 435 B.C., roughly 440 years before Jesus is ever born, a collection of Hebrew writings are all compiled into what's known as the Tanakh. The Tanakh is an acronym, T-N-C-H. It's comprised of three parts. First, there's the Torah, or the Law. That is the T of Tanakh. Then there's the Nabim, the N, the prophets. That's uh, what Nabim means in Hebrew. Finally, there's the Ketuvim, uh, C-H. The Ketuvim uh, means writings. It can also be translated Psalms. That is your Tanakh. So law, prophets, and writings. Or law, prophets, and Psalms. 
That's the Tanakh. That should sound familiar because Jesus just referenced that in Luke 24, 44. Open up their minds to understand the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The reason you should know about the Tanakh, and the reason this is important for you in 2019, is because the same books in your Old Testament are the exact same books from 439 B.C. when, when they compiled all of these writings together. What Jesus was preaching from 2,000 years ago is exactly what you could look back at your Old Testament and read right now. In case you're super scholarly or in case you want to impress your friends or find a Jeopardy category on this, I'll quickly break this down for you. The Tanakh is comprised of 24 books. Well, our Bible Old Testament has 39 books. I thought you said it was the same information. Why is there a discrepancy? Because the Tanakh combines some of the books that are separated in our Old Testament. But it's all the exact same info. So the Torah has five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes people call that the Pentateuch. Penta means five, five books uh, in your Torah. The Nabim, the prophets, it has eight books. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, which is two books in our Bible, one in theirs. Kings, again, two books, one for them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then an entire section called the Minor Prophets. It's one book in the Tanakh. Uh, We separate it out in our Bibles because it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, Finally, there's the Ketuvim, or the Psalms, or the writings. It's called Psalms because that's the first book. Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentation, Ezra, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, one book, two in ours, and Chronicles. Again, two for us, one for them. So that's how you get 24. Now, roughly a hundred years after Jesus rises from the dead, people want to translate this Hebrew Tanakh into Greek because everybody spoke Greek. And these followers of Jesus wanted to know more about what he was preaching on when he was preaching, but it was all written in Hebrew and they don't speak Hebrew. And so they want to translate the Tanakh into what's known as the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Tanakh. And our order in our Old Testament follows that Greek translation. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic background, you're wondering about the Apocrypha. Because the Apocrypha sits between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in fairness, if you grew up Catholic, you're also wondering if you should call me Father and why I'm not wearing a robe. But I don't have time to answer all of those questions for you this morning. In the meantime, you can call me what I make my wife call me, which is Your Excellency. Okay, so do you have to come? That's not true. Can you imagine how that would go down at my house? That's not going to work. But if you're unfamiliar with the Apocrypha, which is what we were talking about, Uh, It's a collection of writings by church leaders. So remember, there's roughly 440 years between Old Testament and New Testament. And the Hebrew Bible and when Jesus was born, roughly 440 years, uh, church leaders kept writing, but God quit talking. Theologians call this the intertestamental period. And I want you to know that Jesus never affirmed those writings. We know that because the Old Testament is quoted 295 times in your New Testament, but never once is the Apocrypha ever quoted. And this is why we don't believe that it's considered sacred scripture. 
Just for the record, the men writing it didn't think it was either. If you read the original translations, they say this is not Scripture. This is our take on some of the writings. They felt like it was helpful for spiritual development, which I do too. You can read it. I think it's fine to read. But it is not divinely inspired Scripture. Now, let me show you one more text in Luke that is the strongest proof that we have that Jesus accepted your Old Testament as valid as it is written, and you should too. This is Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 47. Jesus is speaking to some lawyers. He says, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed at the altar, uh, between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. So here's the deal. Jesus, like I said, speaking to some lawyers, he says they're responsible for killing all the prophets, right? Not super feel-good preaching at the time. And he says, you're responsible from Abel, which is Genesis chapter 4, all the way through Zechariah. Abel to Zechariah, their blood is on your heads. Now, his disciples are like, Jesus, what about that love stuff you were talking about earlier? You're trying to get us all killed up in here, telling about they're responsible for all of this. But the reason I bring up this passage is because that the order Jesus just laid out is not chronologically correct. There is no reason for you to know this. It's what you pay me for. But Zechariah is not the last prophet to be killed in terms of timeline. A guy named Uriah is killed after him. You can read about it in Jeremiah 26.20 if you're interested. But why is that significant? Because the Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles, right? We already established that. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, you can read about Zechariah getting murdered. In other words, what Jesus is really communicating is from Genesis to Chronicles, from Abel to Zechariah, the entire Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying to these lawyers and Pharisees, and he said you're responsible for everybody in between. Point being, Jesus believed in and preached from your entire Old Testament. Now, Not only did Jesus preach from your Old Testament, but he also gives himself authority over it. It's kind of what made everybody so mad. That and the talk about him, you know, them being murderers and responsible for all the blood and all that, that wasn't super awesome either. But they're mad because Jesus is saying, I'm authoritative over all of Scripture. Read his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, basically the whole sermon over and over. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, you shouldn't even look at a woman lustfully. Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, in other words, I have sovereignty over what's written in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. 
Mark 1.22 records for us that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And so I'll uh, just tell you that it's uh, not just yes to the Old Testament. It's also yes to whatever Jesus commands because he has jurisdiction over it all. Which where is it recorded for us what Jesus taught? The New Testament. So really, the second question that we need to establish is, does Jesus believe in the New Testament? Because he clearly believes in the Old Testament. Does he believe in the New Testament as it's written for us today? Well, if Jesus' model for ministry was to preach the Bible, it would seem likely that Jesus would leave for us an explanation or a record for future generations so that they could also exposit Scripture as He did, especially since He gave us new information compared to what we had in the old information, which is why it's called a New Testament versus an Old Testament. So before I show you the new information recorded for us, you might want to jot this down. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism and the replacement for spirituality. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, which is recorded for us in the Old Testament, and it's what Judaism is known for. Jesus fulfills Judaism and replaces all other world religions and spirituality, and Jesus takes precedence over it all. Why is that good news? Quite frankly, because that's the only way you can have a relationship with God and lead a fulfilling life. Think about it. Why did God create you? I don't know, Pastor, it's why I came this morning. I'm hoping you could tell me. Why did God create me? He created you. Listen, He created you to be an image bearer, His image bearer on the earth. In other words, you were created by God as a child of God to reflect the image of God to creation around you. The very first chapter in your Bible, Genesis 1.26, clearly says that God said, let us make man in our image. Well, if you follow the story, you know that we jacked all that up. And we're no longer reflecting God's image how He created us to. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, put themselves in the place of God by disobeying God, and the punishment for disobeying God was death. That seems like a harsh harsh punishment. It's not a harsh punishment when that's the only rule. And everybody on the planet knows the one rule. Don't eat the tree of knowledge and good and evil, or you're going to die. And when you consider the holiness of God, that He can't do anything wrong, the punishment of death is not that big of a punishment. Now, God, in His mercy, does not immediately just kill everybody. But instead, He created for us a way to be restored back into a relationship with Him through the death of animals. He first had to sacrifice an animal and shed blood to clothe Adam and Eve. 
And then in the long run, he developed an institute of policies, very complex system of sacrifices, so that we could be made right and our sin for, could be forgiven. And then he gave Moses and the people of Israel a whole bunch of laws and commands so that they could begin to reflect his image on earth again. That's the whole point of your Old Testament, that the people of Israel could live in such a way that the whole world around them could know who God is. But as we know, they didn't do a good job with any of that either. And so instead of continuing to make us sacrifice goats and bulls, he instead comes to earth himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, so he didn't inherit the sin that's in all of us as human beings and the sin nature that each one of us are born with. Jesus doesn't inherit any of that. He then lives a perfect life, thereby becoming the ultimate sacrifice just like an animal is innocent they didn't do anything wrong which is why we can sacrifice them somebody had to be innocent so that we could sacrifice them jesus is innocent all our sin is put on him and because he rose from the dead he defeats the penalty of sin which we already established was death and because he defeats death now you can be made new you can be made an image bearer of God again. If you trust Jesus as the forgiver of your sins, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees himself. He sees the image of Jesus Christ. That's why this is good news. Because you're adopted into God's family. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but receiving an adopted child is way harder than conceiving your own child, right? I mean, unless something, you know, assuming there's nothing physically wrong with you that's preventing you from having children, the lawyers, the money, the paperwork, the waiting, that's way harder than just... Y'all know how that happens, right? I mean, I don't know if I had to bring out my pop-up book for my children but so that's way harder the adopting part than conceiving your own child so the fact that God does all the work to adopt you into his family what could be better news than that no more goat hair no more old you no more uh, old man skin, just the image of God made possible in you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's what's at stake for you today. I mean, somehow your sin has to be paid for because there's a penalty for sin. And you can either pay for it by spending an eternity away from God or you can receive it freely as God's gift to you. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? That's the entire message of your New Testament. Jesus fulfills the sacrifices that were required in the Old Testament and in Judaism, and he replaces all of spirituality because there's no life apart from him. There's no worship of trees and no worship of water and all these gods in nature. And No, Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the only one who can forgive your sin. You had nothing to do with it. 
All you can do is freely accept the sacrifice Jesus already paid for you. Which if that's the message of the New Testament, the ultimate question becomes, well, can we trust it? Can we trust everything that you just laid out for us in the New Testament? Can we believe that all of that is true? Simply put, the reason you can trust in the New Testament is because Jesus authorized it. He commanded his disciples to write it. And I'm going to show you this in Luke. Man, we're, we're loving Luke. Luke chapter 6. Check this out. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. And he prayed all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples. And he chose 12 of them to be apostles. So notice, Jesus calls together all of his disciples. The word disciple means follower. Jesus had a lot of followers. We know in Luke that he sends out at least 72 Uh, to go preach this good news all around the world. And so we can infer that at least 72 people are here brought together uh, and Jesus calls out of all of the disciples, 12 of them to be apostles. And the word apostle means to be an authoritative representative. Uh, Back in history that if you went to go announce news for a king, you were an apostle. You had the authoritative word of the king, and whatever you said went. In the same way, the apostles that Jesus just announced as apostles have his authoritative word. And whatever they say goes. So if you're trying to figure out if the New Testament is trustworthy, you should first ask, was it written by an apostle? That's the exact same question, church leaders, as they're trying to figure out how do we get this Bible put together, what documents are authoritative, what did Jesus command, in order to become New Testament canon, it had to be written by an apostle, with the help of an apostle, or with the endorsement of an apostle. So for example, Matthew, his real name is Levi, he's one of the twelve Jesus just announced as an apostle. Mark, he's Peter's interpreter. Peter couldn't write. Mark wrote for him. Peter was an apostle. Luke, our boy Luke, the Greek physician. He's uh, Paul's assistant. Paul is an apostle. James, the brother of Jesus. He's called an apostle in Galatians 1.19. John, also an apostle. Paul, we already talked about, an apostle. So by A.D. 367, 330 years after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, the church formalizes all of these writings that they have. They bring all the writings that they can find written and they, put, and they decide what goes in and they put it into the New Testament canon. The word canon, Greek word, literally means measuring stick. So they wanted to measure everything that went into the New Testament. So all the books written in the New Testament, despite what you've heard, they've all were written within decades of Jesus Christ dying and raising from the dead. Within decades. The question most people ask then is why did it take so long to become Scripture? So decades after Jesus is born, 30, 40, 50 A.D., how do we get to 367 A.D. until we get this book in our hands as it's written today? Surely it was a conspiracy. 300 years. 
you know, surely it was for money. Surely it was for power. What about Constantine? He had to orchestrate all of these things together. What about the Da Vinci Code? I saw that movie, Pastor. How did we get the it's all It's all a conspiracy. None of that is true. The reason it took 300 years from when the documents were written until they were compiled into a scripture, hear me, is because people were dying because of owning the literature. People were being murdered for writing stuff down. Secondly, a lot of people were claiming to be apostles when they weren't apostles and they were writing down heretical information and the church leaders need to filter in who actually was an apostle and who was not an apostle. So people needed to clarify what the information was. There's no conspiracy. Nobody was getting rich over this. Again, everybody was dying who had the information for hundreds of years. Gruesome deaths. And you don't die for a conspiracy, right? Like for 300 years, somebody's going to blow the whistle on that. And somebody's going to be like, no, it was Bill down the street. He wrote this whole thing in his basement. I Don't kill me, right? And when they throw James off a cliff and break both his legs, and then it takes a while for them to scamper back down the cliff, and they say, recant, because what you're saying isn't true. And he says, I saw him raise from the dead, and they run a spear through his body. Nobody's dying for false information. And what we have contained in these pages is not a list of moral things that you should accomplish in order to live a good life. You have the very words of God to give you fullness of life and the people around you an eternity in heaven with God, your creator. Hallelujah, somebody. And so let me leave you with this. One of Jesus' apostles, a guy named Paul, who used to be called Saul, whose job prior to him becoming an apostle was to kill all of these Christians who were writing down this new information about what they saw in Jesus Christ. He gets saved by God and he writes this after becoming an apostle in Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament uh, uh, apostles, this is what our information is built on, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone because he confirms all of scripture in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the lord and in jesus you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which god lives by his spirit see god lives inside of you by his holy spirit when you trust in jesus you are a temple and there's one thing god wants his spirit to accomplish in your life more than anything. And he wants you to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. And in order to do that, 
He wants you reading the Bible because that's where he speaks and that's where we know life transformation can happen. And so he wants you to read it. And that's where we find out what Jesus wants you to do in life and the new rules that he's given. That's all listed for you in the Bible. And so if you don't own a Bible, make sure you grab one on your way out. It's our gift to you because I want you reading the Bible and I want you in a small group reading the Bible with a group of other people because that's, again, where life is going to, to change for you. But if you get nothing else, I say, tune me in right now. I want you to hear this. This book is reliable. This book is trustworthy. This book has the power to change your life. The story in it is unified from the Old Testament to the New. It tells one story across thousands of years and multiple authors and multiple continents. And it's the primary message that God loves you. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. And he created you with a plan and a purpose for your life. And that plan and purpose is so that you can reflect the image of God to the rest of the world around you so that they too can be put into a relationship with him so that just like you, they can spend an eternity with God. God is a good father. And he wants you in a relationship with him. And you don't have to take everything in this book on faith. As if faith is just something you can conjure up. No, this is historically reliable and verifiable. And eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection is who wrote it. And you have the power to love God with your entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the message contained within these pages. And God's way is way better than anything you could come up with in your life. And the reason most of you are searching and struggling and trying to do all of these things is because you're not trusting that God's way is better. And it's the same thing that hurt our parents long ago in that Garden of Eden, as if God's trying to hold out on them. God's not trying to keep anything from you. He just wants you to be part of his family. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth to die a death that was meant for us, to live a perfect life so we wouldn't have to. Thank you for orchestrating men and apostles to be eyewitnesses of this and record this information for us in your word. God, we believe that everything that's written within these pages is true, it's verifiable, and it has the power to change our lives. God, I'm just asking you to do what only you can do now and send your Holy Spirit here in a powerful way into our hearts and to our lives. And as we continue to pray, I'm just asking each one of you to start reflecting over the information that you've heard today. And maybe you've lived your life wondering if the Bible is true and if you can trust it and you should do what it says. And other people have been wondering about why they, why you were created. You've wondered what your purpose and your plan is in life. 
And I'm just asking to God to do what only He can do and speak to you right now and change your life through Jesus. And if today's the first time you've ever heard the message of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom of God, I want to give you a chance just to surrender your life to the Lord right now and say, God, I believe in you. I believe in your son, Jesus. And I believe he rose from the dead and can forgive my sin. Please forgive me. Help me to live new. Thank you for saving me. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.